special treat this weekend to have my friend Adam Hushka with us, and uh, I've known Adam for almost a decade now, maybe it is right at about a decade, and uh, I led with Adam over at Harvest in Billings, and even then before that at Faith E, which is Journey's grandmother church, and Adam and his wife Teresa uh, have it in their hearts to plant a church in Helena, and we are a church planting church. We will plant churches. We don't believe that we just exist to huddle in here like we four, no more kind of a thing. We believe that the gospel is ever expanding and ever increasing. And so we're going to joint venture the Helena Church plant with our mama church, Harvest, where Adam is on staff now. And so Adam is here today to talk to us as a church about our role in being a part of what God wants to do in Helena. And so I hope you hear very loudly and very clearly his invitation to all of you. Like maybe there's some of you sitting in this room who will quit your jobs and move to Helena to make that church go. And so on that note, would you please give a very warm Journey Church welcome to our friend Adam Hushka. We like to say that, Brian said this last night and he saved it for me today, that, that we'll have two moms is the way we think about that harvest and journey. We think there's a little bit of mileage in that and none of you are laughing. <clears throat> we think it's hilarious. Uh, okay, so, you know, it really is kind of a privilege for me to be here, get to come about once a year and like the friendships that are growing are just fantastic. Love Brandon, you guys know him, I, I'm getting to know him. And when Brian and I were at George Fox in Portland, Last October and February, we stayed with his parents. So, like, I feel like I'm getting to know him really, really well, you know, and then it's occurring to me over the weekend, like, no, I see him once a year, but I spend 20 days a year with his parents, so he doesn't know me nearly as well as I know him. <coughs> Brian and I go back a decade, and as I was thinking and praying about this weekend, like, the, the way I think about Brian is this, is, you, you know those friends who are constantly serving you, and you don't know how you could serve them back because they never tell you or really expose any need in that regard? That's really the kind of friend he's been for Teresa and I. Just, man, I could just list thing after thing after thing that he's done for Teresa and I, so thanks, Brian, for that. We've just decided we're just going to send him cash in the mail every once in a while, just kind of <laughs> say thanks. Anyway, and that means when you send cash, credit goes to me, so that'll be a good deal. Okay, so really what we want to do tonight is this morning, sorry, I'm used to evenings in my world, is just paint a picture for the type of people we are and the type of people we hope to be in Helena, like just... To, to give you a feel for who's, who's, here's who I am, here's who we are, this crew that's already committed to going, and, and here's the kind of people that, that we want to be in this town, city called Helena. So I'd like to pray, and, and we'll just jump right into that. God, thanks. Thanks for this community of people called Journey Church and the real cool things you're doing here. Thanks for the power of relationship that's real evident here. Thanks for changed lives and God, we, we lift up this morning to you. For some, perhaps there is a, a tap about Helena, and, and that for them is the message. And for others, they might be in a real different spot. And so pray that you would speak to them the way they need to be spoken to this morning. We love you. We trust you. It's sure an honor to gather in your name and wrestle with your text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The way we frame who we want to be in Helena is with a question. We say this, uh, what would it be like to be a part of a community of people? Who, who gathered on Sunday to, to wrestle with who God really is and what his dreams for the world really are, and then to spend the other six days out there in Helena, in the world, telling God's story with our lives. 
So, so the way we talk about it is, what would it be like if we, we gathered on Sunday and we wrestled with Jesus and wrestled with who he really was? We, we worshiped, we, we built community, we, we reached out to people who don't have a relationship with him. Like, what if we had this sweet, fun, relevant gathering on Sunday? And then from there, we kind of had this covenant of, okay, now let's, let's get the heck out of here and let's get out there and just tell God's story with our lives. For us, we, we talk about, like, let, let's, let's gather and I recognize that this is real consistent with what you guys are shooting for, so please don't hear me saying otherwise, but, but let, let's gather, and then let's rather organically, with, with the relationships we already have and the skills we already have and the places we already live our lives, scatter back out into the community and tell God's story with our lives. I had the privilege of going to Israel a couple months ago with some friends from Mosaic, which we'll talk a little bit more about what that is later. And one of the things that stood out to me, especially as I've processed Israel with some professors and friends and stuff, is... Like Jesus, if I could say this, he lived a pretty typical first century Jewish life. I mean, certainly he wasn't typical. I mean, he was the son of God. He was 100% God, 100% man. I mean, he did some pretty amazing things, right? Like, I'm not trying to downplay that. Raising from the dead, pretty fantastic, right? But, but nonetheless, like his life on, on a daily basis... It was a pretty typical first century Jewish life. He went to synagogue. I mean, the guy had, one of my professors said, Adam, he had 33 years to change the world. And he wasted a lot of time walking, like, right? Like, it's just kind of the fact of the matter, which encourages us and frankly informs our bent a little bit because what it tells us is that the kingdom of God, it can break in through the most mundane cracks and crevices of life. That, that it's not so much about like inventing these superb ministries per se, although those certainly have their place, but the kingdom of God can break in through a very typical, mundane, everyday existence. Whether that's hanging out at home with a bunch of kids in diapers or, or working in a cubicle or, or, or driving heavy equipment, whatever that is, like as I look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, more and more it strikes me like his life and his ministry had way more to do with who he was than any peculiar, unique thing that he did. Now, certainly he did some unique things. That, that's kind of at the heart of what we talk about, is let's, what would it be like to say, we're going to do church on Sunday, and we're going to do it as well as we possibly can. I don't know if we can do it this well, because this is, this is pretty amazing. But we're going we're gonna to do it as, we're going to do it top-notch, as one guy says, and then we're just going to agree to go be the church for the other six days. That, that's kind of what's in our heart. There's a text, there's, there's a picture from the text that we could maybe use to help paint that. Mark chapter 7, if you've got a text. If not, we're going to have it on the screens. I want to start in 731, and what I want to do is take some time weaving my story into a story in here that maybe would help us put some handles on what we mean by gathering and scattering. Start in 731. <clears throat> then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I get a funny story about the Sea of Galilee. I think it's funny. They didn't think it was funny last night. Um, so when we were in Israel, uh, one of our guides was this guy named Boaz, like five foot nothing, kind of former special ops in the Israeli, Israeli military. So one of those guys that you look at him and you go, he could kill me, like that fast. Uh, very confident dude. And his family's been in Jerusalem for 250 years. So you do the math how long Israel's been a nation. Like it's kind of a, he's kind of a rough family. There's no moderation in his worldview about Jews and Palestinians hardcore Israeli dude. So we're walking along the Sea of Galilee, and this Australian dude who was on our trip, old, older guy, said, hey, Boaz, what, what do you think of that peace treaty that they're signing tomorrow? Which you might remember in June, there was a ceasefire. 
not peace treaty. Well, what are you talking about, peace treaty? And he's very annoyed at this point. Well, I saw on the news that they're signing a peace treaty in the morning. Oh, he said, oh, you mean the ceasefire? That's just so they can retool and reload and come at us again. And then he said, very, very annoyed, he pointed at the Sea of Galilee, and he said, to call that a peace treaty is like calling that the Atlantic Ocean. He's annoyed, and you didn't think it was funny either. It was very funny at the time because like, there was nothing about him that was amused with the situation. Okay, then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. I, I want to spend a little time on that word Decapolis. Deca, ten, polis, city, and actually in Hebrew, chaos. So the Decapolis, yeah, there we go, refers to these ten cities. All but nine of the ten of them are east of the Jordan River. The way the rabbis in Jesus' day talked about these cities was you might remember the seven nations that Joshua and his people were supposed to expel, and they didn't. The way the rabbis talked about it is those seven nations are those ten cities now. So these, these ten cities, these are Roman, Hellenistic, Greek cities far from Jewish. In fact, an Orthodox Jew in Jesus' day, it was taught, you don't even go there. Like, it would be sacrilegious to even visit these places. We, we've seen some of them. We're, we're talking about, like, one of the things that always stands out to me when we go there is, is a public bathroom, essentially, a public bathing house, co-ed, and any sorts of children available for whatever pleasure you like while you bathe and go to the bathroom and all these different things. Disgusting, vile places. Pagan as pagan could get in this day, contextually, especially. Last night I said it would, it would be like, um, an Amish per, like a, an Amish person's view on Vegas, perhaps. And if you're Amish, I'm sorry, and maybe you testify, I'm not sure, but nonetheless. Like, th- this is, like, you've got to go, this is as pagan, sorry, as pagan gets. You don't go there. In fact, oftentimes in the Gospels, it'll say Jesus went with his disciples to the other side. That was an idiom in his day for that side that you don't even dare talk about, this, this side of these ten cities. So, so Jesus is hanging out in the Decapolis, already a very radical move. Now let's jump down to chapter 8. He's still in the Decapolis. We're going to skip the part that helps us get that. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked? Seven. Seven loaves in the land of the seven nations. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha, which is the other side. Again, now he's going to the good side. The question maybe that frames tonight is, is what are 4,000 people in this dark pagan land doing following a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher around? Like, like what happened that there's 4,000 people, and this isn't just some kind of moderate interest. I mean, they, they've been, they've, three days. Like, like, I like the Broncos and would love to watch them win the Super Bowl, but I don't think I'd be so committed that I'd sit there and watch it for three days having not eaten, you know? Like, like this, this isn't just casual interest. So my question is, is, is what has to happen in a dark pagan part of the world that 4,000 people are intrigued at who this guy is? They don't, they don't care about Jewish rabbis. They don't care about Judaism other than that they'd like to get rid of it. 
What, what has to happen? Which maybe we could ask the question, like just in our own terms today, what, what has to happen in your friends' lives for them to be this intrigued with Jesus, this interested in who he really is and what his dreams for the world really are? I mean, what happened in yours? Maybe would be a way to ask it. You're here, which says you have some interest in who Jesus is. What, what happened in your life, in your story, that, that sparked an interest to this level? I mean, th- this is a, as pagan as it gets, and there's 4,000 people trafficking around this Jewish Messiah, this Jewish leader, this Jewish rabbi. I was born in 1978 to Christian parents. When I was born, they had a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter already. They were both 21 when I was born. Uh, my mom, her background was Catholic, both sides, best I can tell, as far back as I've trained or been able to trace. She, my mom was raised Catholic. She grew up in Billings, went to Catholic school all the way until high school, and she went to Billings West. Um, just like God-fearing Catholic people. My dad's side wasn't quite as clean. My dad's dad was raised Catholic as well, and, and I knew his parents, Ralph and Rose were their names, and, and they were just these delightful, godly people, classic old German railroader people in Laurel. But my dad's, my dad's mom, Darlene is her name, her parents were, were congregational. They were, they were Protestant. And so when my dad's parents got married early in their 20s, that was in the era where, you know, like Catholics and Protestants, they don't co-mingle. And because one side's going to hell and one side's going to heaven and you've got to figure out which side you're on before you can tell who's going where, you know? Like, <laughs> right? You, 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 so so it, it was ugly. And the best I can tell then, what that created in my dad's upbringing was a pretty moderate upbringing, a pretty unchurched family because there was this division right off the bat and so no one could really agree where to go and so they, they certainly believed in Jesus but, but there was very little, maybe discipleship would be the best word going on in his home. So, so I was raised Catholic, um, went to CCD, catechism, you know, that deal, was, did my first communion in the Catholic Church, was confirmed in the Catholic Church when I was 17, was stoned, but was confirmed nonetheless in the Catholic Church. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> my, my, I say that like I'm proud and I'm not, but it is kind of funny to me and God's grace is sufficient because I'm... Anyway, so pretty normal elementary years. Uh, junior high, middle school, I grew up in Laurel. We did middle school there. A few major things happened in middle school that were pretty catalytic. One, I met a guy named Aaron. Aaron was dated my sister. Aaron was a year older than my sister, so I graduated in 97. He graduated in 93, just to kind of place that. So when I was in seventh grade, he was a junior in high school, and that's when they started dating. And, and he took a profound interest in me. Like, he was cool cat. Like, you might remember the, the, that was the year of the Nike, the Nike slick pants and the Michael Jordan shoes, and he was all that. Kind of up-and-coming basketball star. He came to all my junior high basketball games, came to my baseball games, came to my football games, would, would take me to movies like in his 65 SS Impala. Like this guy was cool and profoundly interested in me. Uh, <clears throat> so that was a major thing that happened in junior high. The second would be my parents got divorced the summer before my freshman year. And kind of simultaneously, my mom moved to Kalispell, my dad stayed in Laurel, and I chose to live with my dad. Simultaneously, I made, at that time, seniors in Laurel, senior baseball, was 14 and 15. And so I made the all-star team, which means I spent a, a large part of, portion of my summer with... 10 or so guys who, while I had just finished eighth grade, had just finished their freshman year. And you could see how that kind of is a setup for disaster. So that summer, 
Um, started smoking, you're, you know, messing around with that. Started drinking my freshman year on my birthday, November 24th, in celebration of having made the freshman basketball team. Um, I went out with a couple of guys and got an MIP. One of the guys with me was a senior in high school. The other guy was 26 and got a DUI. So again, there's kind of a picture of how quickly things were turning for me. <clears throat> um, what happened when I got the MIP was my dad kind of dropped the hammer on, on that, of course. I figured out, man, it's pretty hard to drink and get away with it. And over the next few months, what I discovered was I could get stoned and get away with it pretty easily. And, and so a few of the guys that I played All-Stars with that summer, we, we, we started into the stoner scene. I don't know what they call it today. That's what we called it then. And, and frankly, we liked it. And it was pretty conducive to my personality and, and our bent and kind of the introspective and kind of artsy and just all those different things. Like, like we just dug it. And for the next couple of years, like, we, didn't, we didn't steal, we didn't sell. We just drove around in my 65 Impala, so you can see the influence Aaron had on me. Um, <clears throat> we just drove around and smoked a lot of weed, and that, that was kind of life. I say that I, I, I went to school sober a few times my sophomore and junior year. What was happening in sync with that was Aaron was kind of leading me into that. He had, he had went to college in Laramie, came back, got an apartment with a few other guys his age, and so now me and my buddies who are sophomores and juniors in high school are hanging out in his apartment in Billings doing all that stuff, and he's kind of leading me down that path. Towards the end of my junior year, Aaron died, and, and that became kind of the next dramatic deal for me. Let's pause there and go back to Mark 5. I can't prove why there were 4,000 people following a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish rabbi around. I can't prove how these deeply pagan Roman people became so interested in Jesus. But, but I think there's a good clue in, in the book of Mark that, that might explain it for us. Mark chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. By the way, that means the expelled ones. So there again is a picture of this land. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What's your name? My name's Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number. Which raises the question, what does that smell like? You know, like 2,000 pigs. Like I've been to the fair and seen one. And okay, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, "'Go home to your family.'" And tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. I can't prove it. But, but I wonder, I wonder if 
how many of those 4,000 people were intrigued by who Jesus was because a formerly demon-possessed man who, who experienced him and his grace and his forgiveness and who he was went back into his world and just told a different story. Like, like I wonder how many of those 4,000 people who, who were following Jesus around were there because this man did exactly what Jesus said and did exactly what the text says he did. He went back into the Decapolis, told of Jesus, and all of a sudden there was amazing captivation in this deeply Roman pagan land at who this Jesus is. I think we can take it back to your life. Like, I would bet that a very high percentage of you here today, you've probably heard in an uncountable number of great sermons read great books, heard great apologetics, but, but probably most of you, if you had to pick one thing, it would be a relationship with somebody who told a different story. A little more archaeological evidence that I think suggests that this might have been the demoniac. Yeah, there we go, there's the map again. So, so you see Hippos, that right there on the east of the Sea of Galilee, top left there. Hippos is also a city that um, they now call Susita. Now, archaeologists generally agree, I don't think I've heard of one that doesn't, that this, this pig incident happened right below the city of Hippos because most of the Sea of Galilee, if pigs are going to enter it from the east side, they're going to saunter into it because it's just flat. And so if pigs are going to run into the Sea of Galilee, they're going to kind of kamikaze style, just sprint into the lake from flat, rather flat land. But right below Hippos, there's a large hill that even to this day, the road that cuts around the Sea of Galilee has to cut through this steep bank, just like we would on a mountain pass, because there's a steep bank that ends in the Sea of Galilee. So, so most, most archaeologists that I know of anyway say, oh yeah, this happened at Susita. Here's a couple pictures of Susita just to give you a feel for it. That, that's, that would be the wide road. Literally, like in, in a Galilean town, there's not roads that wide. That's the road into Susita. That gray off in the, in the distance, that's the Sea of Galilee. And there you go. So this is at the brow of the hill of Susita. Off to what is our right, I don't have a good picture of it, is, is the place where this hill that just ends in the Sea of Galilee. But you can see down there, like pigs aren't running down a hill to get into the Sea of Galilee right there. They're walking into it. So, so there's this idea. Okay, next picture. That's Marty, a friend who led our trip. Those two white things, white marble, I'm assuming, those are third or fourth century, probably fourth century. Those are crosses on those. This is a room in Susita that, that archaeologists have recently discovered that was at some point converted into, whether, they, whether it was a, some kind of pagan temple or whatever, but it was converted into a church. There's incredible archaeological evidence that Susita became this Christian hub. In fact, by second century, the Decapolis had become profoundly Christian. In fact, one other little piece of evidence. There's a creed that probably most of you, especially if you have some kind of mainstream church background, will recognize. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. We'll stop there. The Nicene Creed, co-authored by the Bishop of Susita. Pretty cool, huh? Like this crazy demoniac entered back into his organic world, told a different story 
And, and there's a good chance that the Decapolis was forever changed because, because of it. Two days before Aaron died, um, Aaron battled leukemia for a few years. That's why he had to come home from Laramie. Uh, went to Seattle, got a bone marrow transplant, came back from Seattle, developed graft-versus-host, which basically means he, he was terminal. And so at getting pronounced terminal, at this point he was my sister's husband and my niece's dad. He, he just killed himself, was, was done. Two days before that, I started dating a gal who was two years younger than me. I was a junior, she was a freshman. Another picture of my soul, perhaps. Um, whose parents followed Jesus. Kind of late 20, early something, early 30-something conversions. Her, her dad, who wasn't her biological dad, her, um, was a recovering alcoholic. Her mom, this was her second marriage, had been saved real late in her 20s, I believe. Just this really cool, raw, God-honoring, God-loving couple. The gal didn't necessarily follow Jesus that, that I knew, but her parents were, were lit up. And they were involved with Faith Chapel, which is this great church in Billings. And so for the next couple years, I just hung out there. At first, I didn't get them. In fact, behind their backs, I called them the Bradys, which at the time was a picture of functionality. And only now do I realize, like, no, 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 no. Like, that's a picture of dysfunctionality. But nonetheless, like, I didn't, I didn't get it. I hadn't seen marriage. I hadn't seen marriage work. Not, not that it was perfect. Not that they didn't have their moments. But they would like disappear into the room and come back and like each other still. Like I hadn't seen lots of family dynamics. They started inviting me into, you know, holidays and all that stuff. Like, really, their family became my family. Our, my relationship with this gal, incredibly unhealthy. My relationship with them, crazy, fun, healthy. The, the mom, Tracy was her name. She in particular, um, her and I got pretty close, and we just spent lots and lots of time together talking. They, they never preached um, never condemned. I, I, was, I was still drinking a lot and smoking. Didn't really ever confront me. Didn't ever do the, hey, if you're going to be around here, you're going to need to stop, stop drinking. None of that stuff. At one point, I talked to Mark about wanting to quit smoking, and, and he bought me Nicorette. So, like, real supportive, but, but just real healthy. It, it was, it's crazy. I, I, to this day, like, I really want to hunt them down and have coffee with them, because I don't quite understand how they did that for me while their, this other stuff was going on with their daughter. <clears throat> My senior year, I, Tracy asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I said, yeah, you know that Bible that you have that like, you, you read it every day, and after, in a year you've read the whole thing? Yeah, I'd like, I'd like one of those. The other deal was they had a rule for their daughter that she had to go to church once a week. That could be youth group, that could be weekend service, that could be Wednesday night service. So we would go together to the Wednesday night service at Faith Chapel, and I'd sit there and go, yep, 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 yep. I mean, I, it was an agreement. I, yep, yep, where's, where's the crucifix? I, what, this is weird, but what, like, yep, 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 yep. So junior year, they bought me that Bible. I started reading it. Um, I'm glad somebody thought that was funny because I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and you just reminded me of another one. The, my, my senior year, we went, my sister and I went to the Mall of America, and, and I, like, I really liked these guys. And so I, I found this hologram thing that was Jesus and Mary. You know, like, so if you turned it one way, it was Jesus with the glowing heart, and if you turned it the other way, it was Mary. And like, I was just sure that I'd just blessed their socks right off you know, when I bought them this thing. And <laughs> I... I, I I literally, for some reason, remember later seeing it on their dresser and was like so offended and so like, why isn't that hanging up in the living room? That is the coolest thing, like <laughs> two and one. This <laughs> is the best. So I, I was pretty oblivious, you know? And yet they didn't fight these wars that probably didn't, didn't need to be fought. 
For graduation, Mark bought me a, a Bible. It is the first kind of overtly Christian thing they did without my asking. They bought me that, the maroon NIV study Bible. You know, you can picture that thing with my name emblazoned in gold across the front of it. And, and the only time I remember him reading the Bible to me was when he gave me that, took me to his kitchen table, opened it up to Philippians 1.6. Now, now I understand that, that he knew that I was graduating and was probably about to lose his influence. And he took me to Philippians 1.6, and it says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Only time I remember him playing, reading scripture to me. I graduated high school, went to school in Missoula. Sorry. Um, and... <laughs> Lasted two weeks, quit, and came back. So there's redemption. Um, <laughs> came back to Billings mostly because of her, frankly. Quit, came, came back, and by this time she's a junior. I'm out of high school, and so you can like she's wanting to party, and I'm wanting to follow Jesus or playing with the idea. And so we broke up in January of that year. Um, <clears throat> that night, I, I literally just was in my room, and I remember just crying out to God. Lord, I don't get it. I've tried it all. I tried the sports thing. I tried the drugs thing. I tried the alcohol thing. Like, Lord, just some, there was a guy in my life just saying, just give God your life. God, just take my life, was what I was saying. Next morning, Mark, her dad, showed up at my door, and I think he gave me some tapes, actually, and, and said, Adam, here's the way I see this. Like, you've been toying, you've been teasing God with your life for a couple years, and he's just put you on your back, ripped your feet out from, out, out from under you, and is offering to help you up. So that day, um, I went to Billings, and my aunt, who was the only person in my life who I knew that went to church regularly, told her, I think I want to follow Jesus, and she introduced me to Fred Nelson, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, but here's what stands out to me about all that. Like, all they did was tell me a different story. There, there was never a pressure to convert, so to speak. There was never a lot of condemnation, not a lot of correction, frankly, and I don't want to be the one to try to find that balance. But, but their lives just told a different story, just demonstrated a different way of living, not a perfect way of living by any means. I mean, th- th- there, there were problems, but, but there was repentance and there was forgiveness and there, there was this, this love that somehow passed through all of that. And, and, and I can say with all the integrity I've got that what happened to me at 19 was go, going, I want to be part of your story. That's really what this amounts to. I think that's what the demoniac did. And I think that explains a lot about the 4,000 people in a pagan land following a Jewish Messiah around, is entering into a world and telling a different story. So when we say, what would it be like to be a part of a community of people who gathered on Sunday to wrestle with God and who he really is and what his dreams for the world really are and to be changed and to be healed and all those things that come with this. And then to leave here and to kind of covenant to get out there and tell God's story with our lives, that, that's kind of what we mean. What, what the Frickles did for me, what the demoniac, I think, did for the Decapolis. In, in Israel, everyone's waiting for the third temple. In fact, there's an organization of, of rabbis and men who literally every vestment, everything that's needed for the temple is made. It's just sitting in a warehouse somewhere waiting for the actual construction of the building, which requires the Dorm of the Rock to move, which requires the Third World War. I don't, I don't know, but like they're, they're, they're waiting for the temple, the Third Temple. And it strikes me that if there's another temple, it won't be the Third Temple, it'll be the Fourth Temple, 
Because Peter says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Every time the temple is referred to in the, in the Hebrew Bible, it's referred to as a house. Built into a spiritual house to be a royal, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Like, like many Jews don't realize it, but the third temple already is built. It, it, it's, it's you all. That, that, that was Jesus' dream. That, that was his story. Go tell the story. Go be the story. So I'm going to pray in just a bit, but I, I just kind of want to challenge you to reflect on some of that. Like maybe, maybe you're in a relationship with some people, and for you, maybe this morning is just encouragement. Like to go, no, just stay the course. Keep telling the story. Like, you don't have to get frustrated because, you know, it's been three days and they haven't prayed the prayer. Like, just keep, keep the course, you know? Maybe you're someone who, who, who's blessed like many of us and, and there's someone in your life telling you a different story. And what's left is for you to embrace their story. And maybe this morning's a time for you to do that, to, to acknowledge your sin and Jesus' forgiveness of that sin maybe for you it's just God opening your eyes and going, hey, you know this guy that you work with, this gal that you live across the street from, this person that, that you recreate with? Would you be intentional about telling the story with your life, about living a different kind, kind of way for them? So I don't quite know where all that lands for you, but, but I want to give you a moment to just kind of reflect with God in, in silence, and, and then I'll pray and, and we'll talk of logistics for a few minutes. So why don't you just take a moment and talk to God about wherever it is all that hits you. God, your, your plan kind of seems crazy that, that you would entrust your story to fumbling, bumbling people like ourselves. So for some of us, we probably just need your grace to, to remind us that that you don't need us to be perfect, but, but to help us learn how we can be more and more faithful. For, for others, God, there's, there's inevitably people in the room who they're toying with your story. And God, I pray that, that you would do the work in them and help them in that decision. I pray that the people who are telling that story would, would be good friends to them. For people who even this morning, are embracing your story? Would you bring people into their lives to walk with them? And, and for parents and friends, leaders, God, would this be a morning of courage, of just encouragement to, to stay the course, to tell your story? God, we love you, and, and thanks for the incredible adventure of of being your third temple, as it were. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so I want to spend a few minutes on logistics of Helena stuff. So at 19, uh, I met with Fred Nelson for the first time. Fred is this kind of discipler guru guy in Billings. At the time, he was an insurance agent. Now, yeah, so if you don't know um, who Fred is, then talk to Brandon because it happens to be his father-in-law, so he can tell you all about him. Um, anyway, met with Fred. He quickly introduced me to a guy named Mitch Garrison, who was a guy my age, and Fred's point there was to try to begin introducing me to some friends my age, as I didn't have any following Jesus. Um, 
Mitch rather quickly introduced me to a guy named Vern Streeter, pastor of Harvest. You all know him, perhaps. And, and Vern offered, gave me the opportunity to intern in the youth ministry at Faith E, grandma of Journey, which was kind of a funny, fun opportunity because I didn't go to youth group in high school. I went to get confirmed, but you know, there was some problems there. So literally, like my second day on the job, my first day on the job was the second time I'd ever been to a youth group. It was a blast. I had a lot of fun with Vern, learned a lot. He planted Harvest after my first year of my internship. It was a two-year internship, so he left to plant Harvest. Brian took the high school ministry job, and so I, I got to intern under Vern for a year and then under Brian for a year, which was this remarkable opportunity because while they have a lot of similarities in their gifts and bents and strengths, they also have quite, quite a bit of differences, and so I feel like I got the, the best of both worlds. Uh, in there, I married a gal named Teresa. We have, we have a picture. Uh, she would be the one to my left. That, that's some friends before we went to Israel a couple years ago. The number of pictures on my hard drive are not representative to my love for Teresa. It's just, I, I didn't have that many. Um, we also have three little boys. So, yeah, next one. The one on the left, um, his name is Justice. He, he'll be two on February 15th. And the one on the right, that's Lincoln. He, he's our oldest, like almost ex- like a few days difference than Brian's twins. Lincoln will be five on Valentine's Day. Oh man, we're going. And Chase, now Chase is our third. He's the one on the left. He'll be three next month. So life's kind of crazy, fun, and my wife is a, is a hero. Uh, we were driving from, we were driving Friday night. I was driving with the boys. My wife was working, and, and I heard Lincoln say, weird. And Chase said, what? And he goes, my heart stopped beating. <laughs> so, so, so life with kids is a lot of fun and very exhausting and a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, so intern under Brian, and then, and then after finishing that year of interning under Brian, was invited to go to Harvest and start the high school ministry at Harvest. Harvest was a year old at that point, and the first year they didn't have a high school ministry. Teresa took over the kids' director job. I went and started the high school ministry. Had a blast. Um, kind of pioneering this thing. You know, there weren't high school students per se really at Harvest, and so just had a lot of fun in building that up. In 2005, I believe, Brian, who was the executive pastor now at this time at Harvest, sent me to a conference at Willow Creek that was for junior high through 20-something ministries. So junior high, high school, and this thing called 20-something. We didn't have 20-something at Harvest. Went to this conference as the high school guy, came back from the conference, asked Brian and Vern for permission to start a 20-something ministry at Harvest, and you know, I would continue to lead high school, but could we start this 20-something thing? Billings is a really hard place to be 20-something because there's not a real strong university presence, and so it just seemed like someone needed to figure this culture out. Got the yes from them. We called it Mosaic. Now, <clears throat> what was also happening at this point was I was kind of feeling pretty weird. And by that, what I mean was, like, having worked under Brian and Vern for five or six years at this point, and seeing their gifts and their strengths and their bents and going, oh, wow, these guys are amazing and, and honestly have more respect for their bents and, and trust their motives more than I trust my own while, while having all of that going on at the same time I was starting to feel weird because I was going, I don't have that. Like, I, There's lots of areas where I'm different and frankly, one of the things that was happening was my bents were getting tweaked a little bit. W- one of them was this whole like social justice stuff and starting to ask these really hard questions about like is it is it the gospel of eternal security end 
the gospel of bringing heaven to earth, like, and really wrestling through some of that stuff. Thus, I was feeling pretty weird and not quite sure what God had for me in the occupational ministry realm because I was, I was just freaked out about myself. Started Mosaic, and what happened in Mosaic was kind of a confirmation because what I figured out rather quickly was I wasn't weird. Maybe I am, but if I am, then lots of people are because what happened was this, this affinity started happening and we started to discover that there, was, there were lots of people asking very similar questions to us, lots of friends whose bents were very similar. I would have these conversations just about different random things, like, what if we did it this way? And, and these people were like, yeah, been thinking the same thing. And then we started discovering these voices on a national level that were kind of asking the same questions and putting things into words that I hadn't been able, in ways I hadn't been able to put them. And so, like, Mosaic just kind of happened and happened well, and we meet now today, tonight, actually, in, in this club thing that we ran in downtown Billings, and just just a blast. Inside of all that, a couple years ago, God began to, the only way I know how to describe it is tap me and talk about Helena. And and so that opened up this discussion. At the time, I was still leading high school and Mosaic. And so that led to a conversation with Vern and subsequently with Brian. And then this invitation that has happened has been like, like, yeah, why don't you take that, who you are, what you've learned there, and go to Helena, and over the course of time I've had these real confirming things happen, like, yes, this is exactly what God's doing to reach people in this town called Helena. So where it stands now, in January, we started inviting Mosaic. The idea was, let's get a core group of people on board who, who are committed to taking, to, to, tra- to relocating, sorry, um, to Helena. And so in January, we started talking to just Mosaic about it. I hadn't talked to Harvest, obviously I hadn't talked to Journey, just talked to Mosaic. In May, the last Saturday in May, 25 people from Mosaic said, yep, we're going to move sometime between now and May of 2009. We're going to move to Helena. Actually, one person already has moved. Some cool stuff starting to happen. Then next month, I I get to be at Harvest, and we'll begin to invite people there to be a part of this. And so the way Brian and I talk about it, who's my coach on all this, by the way, which is quite a treat, is that what we're praying for and dreaming about is a core group of people in Billings, a core group of people in Bozeman, and, and a growing core group of people in Helena who, who will converge next summer in Helena and basically follow the same timeline as Journey followed here in Bozeman, and thus the invitation of being a part of all that from here and that core group of people here. So I, th- I think that's all I got. We're going to give it back to Brian. Give Adam a hand, would you please? <laughs> Way to go, Adam. Thank you very much. And that's going to be a special move of God in Helena. And maybe some of you in this room are supposed to be a part of that. Maybe God's been tapping you on the shoulder today. Maybe he's been tapping you on the shoulder before today. And uh, we're going to conclude our service around worship through music. And I just want you to use this time to listen into the Lord. And here, maybe the Lord speaking into your soul, you're supposed to go and be a part of what God's going to do there. And maybe today is a day where you actually cement that and have an opportunity after the service to talk to Adam. And if you're just remotely interested in that, would you use that card that's in the chair pocket in front of you? And just let us know. Like, signing up on there to say you want to know something about Helena is not signing up to go, okay? So just use that card, and we'll begin to dialogue with you about meetings. Adam will begin to have meetings in Bozeman with people from here who feel that tug on their hearts. 
and he'll just begin to form a core team out of Bozeman that'll then, like he said, converge with the core team from Billings, which will then converge with the core team from Helena, and it'll be a beautiful move of God that only God could orchestrate, and I hope lots of people from around here are a part of that. Like, please hear me saying, like, go. If God's talking to you about going, please don't disobey him. Please go. Listen to him and follow him out, if you would.